Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. And the title of this sermon is In Christ Jesus in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. So today, we will begin Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And to kick us off, I want to read from Peter O'Brien's introduction to the letter to the Ephesians. He says this. He says, The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. This letter was John Calvin's favorite, and J. Armitage Robinson... Uh, later described it as the crown of St. Paul's writings. F.F. Bruce regarded it as the quintessence of Paulinism because it in large measure sums up the leading themes of the Pauline letters and sets forth the cosmic implications of Paul's ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. Among the Pauline writings, Raymond Brown claimed only Romans could match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. While uh, I'm not a big fan of ranking biblical books according to their importance, uh, and it's actually vital that we see the Bible as one book and not 66 books, but with that said, nonetheless, I don't disagree with O'Brien's basic sentiment here. Uh, Ephesians is an important letter. Another commentator, Klein Snodgrass, says this, Pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history. Some of the truths in this letter are hard to wrestle with. They'll make your head spin just thinking about them. But they're vital for understanding who God is, how he works, and what life application looks like in light of these truths. Our text this morning is Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before diving fully into the text itself, I want to give us a bit of an introductory overview and lay out the structure of the entire book. First of all, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. And based on his comments in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 20, he appears to be in prison at the time of writing. This means that this book's written around A.D. 60 from Rome, where Paul was imprisoned at the end of his life. And who's he writing to? How does he know them? Well, while there's a little bit of debate here on whether this letter is written as a circular letter that's meant to be passed around to a wider audience, or if it's written for a specific church, It seems to be to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Well, what do we know about them? As a city, we know that Ephesus was in Asia Minor. So I've got a couple of maps here for us. Asia Minor is in modern-day Turkey. 
So it's that, that yellow area right up there. Uh, it was a port city. Um, and as a city, we know that, that Ephesus um, was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at the time that Paul's writing to them. It was a wealthy city, which was home to, quote, the great temple of Artemis, an ancient fertility mother goddess worshipped by the Romans under the name Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the Artemision, which is the, the area where she was worshipped, was the largest marble temple of the Greek world. According to one Bible atlas, in Paul's day, pilgrims from all over Asia Minor and beyond converged on Ephesus annually in the spring to pay homage to the mother goddess with special celebrations. So, Ephesus had financial influence, spiritual influence, and eventually political influence. In fact, the Roman emperor Domitian awarded the city of Ephesus a provincial imperial temple that was dedicated to the Flavian dynasty. It was given this award because it was a key place of emperor worship. So consider this. One commentator describes Ephesus as a culture filled with idolatry, superstition, and the occult demonic activity, public sexual immorality, materialism, a love for education devoid of God, and the worship of political leaders. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In other words, the, the things the Ephesians needed to be reminded of are the same things that, that we need to be reminded of today. Ephesus was an important city. And on Paul's second missionary journey, he finally visits it. And we read about this in Acts chapter 18. So um, I've got the, the passages up here on the screen for you, but if you want to follow along, we're going to be in that section of Acts for quite a long time. So Acts 18, starting in verse 18. Acts 18, starting in verse 18. So Paul's in Corinth, and then we read this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he's there initially only for a very short time. He's there in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there and tells them, if God wills, I'll be back. And he sails to Jerusalem. Well, in comes this guy named Apollos. And we read about him at the end of Acts chapter 18. He was Jewish by birth, but becomes a Christian. He's quite the charismatic speaker. And he ends up in Ephesus, boldly speaking in the synagogue. Acts 18, starting in verse 25, says this about Apollos. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that awesome? This guy is a rock star evangelist, but he's missing some important pieces of the puzzle. So Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul left in Ephesus, remember, this husband and wife team, they basically disciple this young buck, Apollos. Verses 27 and 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, this is speaking about Paul again, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Sorry, that's, that's Apollos there. So he's making disciples everywhere he goes. Well, while that's going on, while Apollos is making disciples, we learn in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There, he found what? Some disciples. So through Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, people are coming to know Jesus in Ephesus. Paul teaches, baptizes, and disciples some more. And then we read in chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." So Paul is in Ephesus about three years total, which is longer than he stayed in any other city on his missionary journeys. He saw Ephesus as a key place for the gospel to go forth, not just to Ephesus, but to the rest of the world. Now, remember what's in Ephesus? The temple of Artemis. She's worshipped there. But... People are turning from sin and to Christ. Part of that is that they're stopping worshiping Artemis, the fertility god or the maternity goddess. And this threatens the economy. We read this in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. It says, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is happening in Ephesus. And it ticks some people off. I love this. Let's keep reading. Verse 23 says, About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Isn't that great? No little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The gospel being preached and believed in Ephesus is actually changing the economy. One author calls it a holy disturbance. Then it causes a riot. After all the proceedings of this riot being stirred up, them being imprisoned, Paul calls all the disciples together there and encourages them. And then he heads out again. But a bit later, from a distance, in Miletus, he calls together the elders from Ephesus. And he gives them one last bit of instruction. He tells them this. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 32. Speaking to the elders in Ephesus, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He tells them essentially, look, Jesus shed his blood for the church. She's important. Protect her. After I leave, wolves are going to come in to devour the sheep, the same sheep that Jesus shed his blood for. Be alert. Saturate yourself in his word of grace. What great counsel. So he he tells them that. He leaves again. You know the rest of the story. He ends up in prison in Rome eventually. Well... About six to eight years later, he writes this letter to them, letter to the Ephesians. So that's who the Ephesians are. That's who Paul is. Now, let's briefly look at the structure of the letter as a whole. While this is somewhat the structure of all of Paul's letters, it shines brightly here in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul usually begins with doctrine in the first half, followed by application in the second half. And that's exactly what we see here in this book. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 deal with doctrine, and then chapters 4 through 6 deal with application. Uh, Kent Hughes helpfully diagrams it this way. Chapters 1 through 3, who we are in Christ. So our position 
in chapters 4 through 6 how we are to live in Christ, our practice. So our position and then our practice. Or chapters 1 through 3, the wealth. Chapters 4 through 5, the walk. And then chapter 6, 6, 10 following, warfare. Wealth, walk, warfare. Or sit, walk, stand. 1 through 3, 4 through 5, 6, 10, and following. Tony Merida divides it up this way. Chapters 1 through 3, who we are in Christ, our position, how we are to live in Christ, our practice. I already, already went through that one. Um, so that's, that's basically the general structure of the book. Doctrine, application. John Piper has also noted that Paul begins this letter with the words, grace to you, grace to you. And then he ends the, the book or the letter in chapter 624 with the words, grace be with you. So grace to you at the beginning, grace be with you at the end. And this fits the pattern of the letter as a whole. Paul starts with teaching us the doctrine of grace. Grace to you. But he doesn't want us to stay here in this building. He wants us to take that grace that's, that's to us out there. He wants that grace to go with us out into the streets. And that's my hope for us as a church as we study this book together. If we over the next several months, if we learn a lot of great doctrine, but we don't love Jesus more, and we don't live out this gospel of grace, we'll be no better off than the Ephesians. What do I mean by that? Well, unfortunately, the Ephesians got the doctrine part, the head stuff, but it didn't make it to their hearts, at least not permanently anyway. We read about the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2. There are some good things said about them. But verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 2 says this. Jesus says, But I have this against you, speaking to the Ephesian church, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Santa Cruz Baptist. I hope and pray that as we study Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6. I hope and pray that that you know and embrace the truth of God's grace for you. I hope you grow to cherish the doctrine contained here. And I pray that you'll grow in love for Jesus. I pray that you'll practice this gospel in each area of life, in the church, chapter 4, in your marriages, chapter 5, as parents and as children, chapter 6, and in your jobs as employees or employers, also chapter 6. If the gospel doesn't impact and affect our everyday lives, we haven't properly understood it. Now, with all of that background structure and context in mind, let's take a look at the first two verses. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, it was customary to put basic introductory information right up front in a letter. And in many ways, we've kind of returned to that in the technological age with email. When you get an email, it says who it's from, who it's to, and then what? Subject, all up front, right at the top of the letter. That's what we see here. First, Paul, an apostle. What's meant by the word apostle? It's the Greek word apostolos, which the dictionary defines as messenger or ambassador. It comes from the root word apostello, which means to send or to be a sent one. Apostle. And in scripture, we see three primary ways that this word is used. First, simply messengers. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8, 23. It says this. It says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers. The word apostolos. They are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The first way that that word's used is simply as messengers. Second, it's used in the sense of missionaries, or those sent by the church to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are called apostles, um, generally speaking, in Acts 15. Possibly Andronicus and Hunia in Romans 16.7. So, messengers and missionaries. But the third and most common use of the word apostolos is the word that we, we say capital A, apostles. Or those personally selected and sent forth by Christ to preach the gospel with authority and rule in his name. Capital A, apostles. We talked about this when we went through the book of Colossians, but I want to briefly remind us about the qualifications for a capital A apostle and specifically why that office does not exist today. A a capital A apostle has two qualifications. Number one, they saw the risen Christ. Saw the risen Christ. Second, they were commissioned by Jesus himself. So saw the risen Christ, commissioned by Jesus himself. We see these two qualifications in Scripture. When Paul was defending his own apostleship, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He says, am I not an apostle? And then he explains, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So seen the risen Lord. Then in recounting the, the people who saw Christ after his resurrection, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.7-9. He says, then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So, seeing the risen Lord is essential for a capital A apostle. Second, in Acts chapter 26, we see Paul making a big deal out of being appointed by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. 
He, he repeats this again and again and again in places like Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 1.12, 1 Timothy 2.7, and 2 Timothy 1.11. Uh, even when the apostles replace Judas with Matthias, notice this. They don't just make the call themselves. They ask the ascended Christ to make the decision. We read this in Acts chapter 1, verses 24 through 26. It says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's also consider the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 5. It says this, speaking of Jesus, And he called, he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. List out all the names of the apostles. And then verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out. Apostello, same word. So, the office of capital A apostle doesn't exist today. But it did in Paul's time. And on the road to Damascus, the passage we read earlier, Paul meets both qualifications. He saw the risen Lord and was directly commissioned by him. So, in the from line of the letter, we have this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God. What does Paul mean by that? What does he mean by the will of God? Well, First of all, how does Scripture use this phrase? If you've ever struggled with that phrase and wondered, what's God's will for my life? You're not alone. It's a good question. I highly recommend, and I know I've recommended it before, but I will again, Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something. And that the subtitle, it's awesome. I have to read it again. A liberating approach to finding God's will, or... How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. Fantastic book. Highly recommended. This is all on the will of God. I'm going to give this to Robin Lorene for sitting closest this morning. Um, I'm not above bribing people, so there might be, be books in the future. So, um, Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something. Uh, in that book... DeYoung explains, along with many other theologians and pastors, that Scripture has two ways of speaking about this phrase, the will of God. One, God's will of decree, and two, God's will of desire. So number one, God's will of decree is his sovereign will. It's going to happen. You and I cannot thwart it. We see this idea in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. It says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel 
You could replace that with the word will. My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. God's will of decree. Second, God's will of desire. God's will of desire is more along the lines of his commands of what's morally right. His will or his desire for us, which we can and do rebel against. We see this usage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, among other places. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will. How many of you have thwarted God's will today? I know I have. I haven't given thanks in all circumstances. So, God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Those are the two ways the Bible uses that phrase, will of God. It's all over scripture. Now, how's Paul using the phrase here? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Is Paul an apostle because God commanded him to be one and he obeyed? Or is he an apostle by the sovereign decree of God? In other words, it was going to happen. Let's let Paul speak for himself. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says this. It says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he set apart before he was born. How about in the book of Acts? Newly converted Paul shows up to the house of Ananias. Again, Ryan read this earlier for us. Acts 9, 15 and 16. He's speaking to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is what? A chosen instrument of mine. Speaking about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We'll talk more about this throughout Ephesians, but it seems that Paul's apostleship is by God's will of decree. It was part of God's plan, so much so that it couldn't be thwarted by anyone. And this is important. Paul's ministry wasn't just his good idea. John Calvin notes this. He says, For if a man were the most gifted and the most excellent in the world, yet... If he thrust himself forward under his own impulse, he disturbs all order. Paul's apostleship and his ministry as a whole, this is what I want us to see, all of that was God's impulse. It was his idea. And he sovereignly willed for Paul to become who he was. He authorized, he's authorized by God to speak on behalf of Christ. I'm going to say that again. 
Paul was authorized by God to speak on behalf of Christ. Let that sit for a second. Remember, I said that there are some hard things to wrestle with in this book. Things that that we as independent Americans tend to bristle at. My hope for us is that while we study this letter, when we're tempted to bristle or, or reject a doctrine that's taught in this letter, remember, Paul isn't just writing his own opinion here. He's authorized by God to speak on behalf of Christ. Because this is true, we must, we must, we must wrestle with the text. It's God's word, and it's true. Even more, it's good. So all of that in the from line of the letter. Now, to, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We've already talked significantly about Ephesus, so I want to key in here on a couple of other words. First, to the saints. Saints. Again, we address this word in the book of Colossians, but it's so important to understand what Paul and what the rest of Scripture means by this word, saints. It's the word hagios. Holy One. This word, hagios, or holy ones, is a beautiful word that unfortunately has been co-opted and distorted. In Scripture, this word saints, or holy ones, isn't for a special class of Christian. It's true of all Christians. Christians are saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. And here's why that's beautiful. None of us are saints because we're particularly saintly. The word hagios means holy. Why are we declared holy as Christians? Because of Christ. Because of our sin, none of us are holy. None of us are saints. But Jesus was. He lived perfectly in every way, without sin. He came and died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And his righteousness, his holiness, his saintliness, gets credited to us, those who repent and believe. Guess what? That makes you a saint. That's beautiful. Now, Because in Christ we're declared saints, we should live holy lives. Lives that reflect God's character and glorify him. And that's what we see Paul commending them for here. Also remember that this is the structure of the whole book of Ephesians. Part one, this is who you are in Christ. You're a saint. Part two, therefore... Live like this. In fact, of the 40 imperatives or commands that are in this letter, only one is found in the first section. 
40 different commands in the book of, of, of Ephesians. Only one is in the first section. And the, the one that's there in the first section is in chapter 2, verse 11. It's a command to remember who you were before conversion. So if you're a Christian, you are a saint. Now, the response to that is to live in light of that. Live holy lives. Let's look again at the text. <coughs> to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So not only are they declared holy because of Christ's righteousness, they're faithfully living it out in Ephesus. Christian, do you understand this? While it's not your faithfulness that makes you saved or right with God, your calling yet is to be faithful. Where God has placed you, in a specific time, in a specific place. You're declared a saint. Now, be faithful in Christ Jesus in Santa Cruz County. Think about this. We learned earlier that there were about 300,000 people in Ephesus when Paul was there. They had a pagan amphitheater that would seat 50,000 people. And yet... Paul and his little band of small house churches were faithful in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. Got that? And they caused no little disturbance. Take that in. 300,000 pagans. Tiny group of Christians. And they caused no little disturbance. Their faithfulness to Christ was having a real impact on the city of Ephesus. Santa Cruz County has a population of about 275,000 people. It's easy to, to look at the stats of how few Christians live here and to get discouraged. But don't. Christian, be faithful in Christ Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Be faithful in Christ Jesus, in Santa Cruz. So, we've got our from line and our to line. Now, the subject line. Verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, this subject line lays out the outline for the entire book. Sinclair Ferguson defines grace this way. Grace is God's amazing favor and love, not only unmerited by us, but also actually demerited. The entire first half of the book of Ephesus is all about grace. That's the reality for us as Christians. Then, the response to that reality is peace, shalom, the well-being of our whole lives. And all of that comes from who? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the source of grace and peace. Not our bank accounts, not our status in society, not our ethnicity, not our age, not our social media accounts, not our education, and not our good works. 
the source of grace and peace is God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of the entire book. If you've turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, you have riches in Christ. Over the next several months, we're going to be mining those riches and praising God for the gift that we've been given. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you too can have these riches of grace and peace, and they're only found in Christ. So turn from sin and trust in him as your highest good and your only hope. You'll never regret that. He's all-satisfying and all-sufficient. And what we're going to learn here in the book of Ephesians is that his riches of grace never diminish. You can take out as many um, deposits as you want or withdrawals, as many withdrawals as you want. They never diminish. Christ's riches never ebb or taper. My hope and prayer for all of us as we study this amazing letter is twofold. Number one, that we'll truly grasp the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And second, that we'll live in light of that glorious truth in every area of our lives. Let's pray.